Part eleven of Confessions of Two Brothers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Confessions of Two Brothers by John Cooper Powis and Llewellyn Powis. Confessions by John Cooper, Section Eleven to leave the war question and revert once more to my general philosophical attitude the reader will remember that i referred at the beginning of the sketch to my feeling that the universe was at once determined by inexorable laws and liable to irrational surprises i said that i wished the universe to be framed in this fashion in order that it might preserve at the same time its unassailable fatality and its inexplicable mystery i do not repent of using in regard to these high philosophical speculations the word wish with all its presumptuous personal implications if i am convinced of anything in this world i am convinced of the presence in every philosophical system of the original wish or will or temperamental bias of the individual philosophizing what does trouble me is the thought that even in what i have said there may remain an element of word-mongering it is difficult to divest oneself of the associations of words and to use them freshly and spontaneously as real symbols what one would like to do would be to use words not so much as the vehicle of thought as of direct physical sensation but this is an enterprise that requires more genius than i possess i am so afraid lest even in what i have tried to say about my feelings of the pressure of fate i should have been led into wordy exaggeration i do not however think that i can possibly exaggerate the constant presence with me of a steady invincible mechanic force pushing me forward from point to point from stage to stage and giving me no loophole of escape in calling this thing by the old classical name of fate i must not be supposed to be personifying it i do not think of it in the remotest degree as conscious still less as benign i think of it as absolutely beyond our analysis and if i try to analyze its effect upon myself i can only say that i feel there is relief in submitting to it and misery in struggling against it i suppose no one is more addicted than myself to becoming the infatuated slave of attractive word combinations my abnormal and insatiable receptivity a sort of sensual voluptuousness in the intellectual world makes me especially liable to attach too great value to these fashionable catchwords my pliable and serpentine cleverness leads me to wind myself into every new word edifice with slippery agility a certain power of rapid and logical assimilation tempts me to pass off as my own conclusions views and visions which are really quite alien to myself my scepticism encourages this fault by constantly reminding me that anything may be true and that i may as well select one view of things as any other i have what i suppose is a latin mind in these matters and i find myself continually tempted to give that curious complexion of logical imaginative plausibility wherein french writers are so cunning to points of view quite foreign to my own nature 
all this is obviously the sort of intellectual quicksand into which the profession of a lecturer would naturally betray a man and yet it is absurd to blame my profession the fault is my own and the inevitable defect of my critical and sceptical quality the same defect may be observed in my style of writing though here there are undoubtedly weighty compensations i have in fact unless it be impossible to catch the flavour of one's own manner no style at all my writing is as transparent and clear as colourless and fluid as my mind i fear that it is the style of every ordinary intelligent person who reads the recent writers if so all i can do is try to make it the vehicle for a certain drastic sincerity which is certainly not yet the attribute of the ordinary intelligent person i can myself see as i read my own writing how difficult it is for me to substitute for all these clumsy pseudo-scientific words with which one's books burden one the kind of suggestive natural imagery touched with delicate perfumes and light blowing ears which gives so gracious a body to analytic thought there is however a certain intellectual pleasure to be derived from the mere contemplation of a sincere writer's wrestling with an evasive subject even though the style does remain awkward and bare and it is with this pleasure that my readers must be contented i cannot think that in this matter of my consciousness of fatality i am being fooled by my love of words as i was when i used to protest my devotion to chaos and chance in that case i certainly did in my nimble and clever way snatch fervently at what was an intellectual fashion this chaos cult was further encouraged in me by the influence of certain among my friends particularly he of the iron hand in the velvet glove whose present pasturage is beyond the equator and he of the titanic spirit in the humorous mask whose habitation is with the herds of manhattan both these original spirits are addicted to speaking as if the steady forward-driving world as it appears to me were tossed from side to side and upheaved and shaken and blown about and swept by strange storms and tornadoes belched forth from elemental abysses the honest truth is that i do not feel these wayward incursions these arbitrary explosions what i feel is the slow majestic march forward of the planetary hosts with all their offspring and the steady uninterrupted thud 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 of the great fatal engines of inexorable law i can remember years ago in chicago arguing fiercely with that inspired idealist the manager of the little theatre there on this very subject he held the view as i do now that the world is governed by irreversible necessity only to him this necessity appeared a thing of mystical benignity beautiful and sublime i argued savagely enough in favour of absolute cosmic anarchy i am inclined to think at this distance that i was pushed into this absurd position by my rage at the idea of a benignant order i did not see then as i see now that it is quite possible to have an order from which there is no escape without it being in the least benignant will my reader be able to keep his temper if i go yet one step further in this reconsideration in this analysis of an analysis 
I plead guilty, hurriedly and without remorse, to the charge of ridiculous inconsistency in these discoveries. I am digging and digging into my profoundest feelings, and instead of throwing away the alien weeds that grow on the top of the soil, I pile them up as interesting specimens, side by side with roots and rock chippings, of much more deeply buried things. It is just here, I may remark, that I differ in opinion from my excellent relative, the Hermit of Egdon. His view seems to be that the deeper you dig into human nature, the more chaotic and startling are your discoveries. And talking with him, I always feel as though below the surface of every human being lurked a great howling gorilla of ungovernable ferocity. My feeling is exactly the contrary, and does not at all, when I really probe into the matter, suggest these hidden calibans. What I feel is that the erratic things, the startling, irrational things, are all on the surface, and as soon as you get below the surface, you touch the vast granite slabs of the huge mill-wheel of irreversible, inevitable order. I am sure this impression of mine is supported by my experience of my own character. It is on the surface that I hate people, and long to revenge myself on people. In the depths of myself I neither love them nor hate them. I am part of the eternal mechanism, and my arrogant heart is no more than a small clockwork fragment of the great timepiece of everlasting necessity. I do not for a moment agree with this desperate view of the profound wickedness of human nature. I do not find human nature either wicked or good. I find it driven forward by the same inevitable laws as the tides and the constellations. Shall I confess to my readers how my own most inveterate vices appear to me? They appear to me as irritable mouths and tongues and fingers, itching and vibrating on the most outward surface of my being. They appear to me as insatiable superficial nerves of my bodily texture, connected indeed by tiny invisible threads, with the cells of my brain, but always ready, if they are drugged with satisfaction, to sink into a state of indifferent quiescence, to turn one's little bodily insanities into these great leviathans of the deep, seems to me to evince a lamentable lack of mental proportion. It is an affair of the surface, an affair of nerves and sensory vibrations. What I am led more and more to feel is that, however desperate and deep our antisocial desires may seem, and however passionate and exalted our ethical ideals may seem, they are neither of them, in the great cosmic system, of the least importance. They come and they go, both our evil impulses and our noble impulses. And it matters little how they succeed one another. What matters, if anything matters, is something subtler, more wonderful, than either what we call good or what we call evil. Something that has no name because it has not reached the rational level, which enables it to be put into words. But something all the same, which is the very secret of existence. Perhaps it is this that I approach when I get such strange satisfaction from lying back upon eternal destiny, that destiny which is neither benignant or malign. But why not benignant? My reader may exclaim. 
Well, there we touch again that inveterate prejudice I feel against a world ruled by providence. If I could get to the bottom of this prejudice, I should get to the bottom of myself. Earlier in this sketch, I endeavoured to defend this bias on purely aesthetic grounds. Was I justified in so doing? Burrowing round and round this pivotal problem in my dogged, tiresome, persistent manner? I am tempted to ask myself the question whether this prejudice against an invisible guiding hand is not merely one of these superficial nervous vices to which I have above referred. Do I quarrel with the idea of providence merely out of itching sensory irritation, which I feel sometimes towards my most attractive neighbour? Is it simply the surliness of the material-minded animal drawing back and snarling at the approach of the amiable stranger. No, I do not believe it. The thing goes deeper than that, deeper perhaps even than the aesthetic question. There is something in me, and it is no mere superficial perversity, which demands an element of cold, unconscious, sublime fatality in the texture of things. Human love is exquisite and rare. It is desirable, as all delicate things that are short-lived and easily destroyed are desirable. But there are other things than love in this huge world. I am not thinking now of malice or vindictiveness or violence. These are only the reverse side of love, and are its inevitable accompaniment. I am thinking of great, cool, large, magical, ordered spaces, where the winds of eternal necessity blow without interruption, and where nothing can ever come that is warm, conscious, friendly, human. Yes, down in the depths of my being lurks like a physical craving for air, a longing for vast, uninhabited, untraversed regions, where even God never comes. I cannot help it. This is the manner in which I am made. I long to escape from humanity, to escape from myself, and how can I do so, if the centre and circumference of the world are the habitation of a God who embraced humanity and is anxious to embrace me. It is precisely this anarchical rebelliousness in my spirit that makes me feel such a thrill of sympathy with Goethe's Mephistopheles when that queer child of chaos expresses his wish that this all had never originally issued from that nothing so here it appears we really do touch the bottom and this perpetual harping upon abnormal feelings proves to be the result not of a longing for arbitrary explosions of wayward life forces but of a longing for quietness and rest for cool deep eternal godless night with this clue in my hand it becomes easier for me to thread the labyrinth of my disposition I ought to be able, with its help, to compel even my style to flow nonchalantly, more smoothly, more naturally, and cease its fumbling after fashionable catchwords. To escape from myself, to escape from humanity, to escape from everything that obtrudes and challenges and exacts, and is attracted and repulsed, such is the secret of my hidden craving. This is why the moon appeals to me. In moonlight things are softened and rendered liquid and flowing. Every separate object loses its garish individuality and seems to float free on a cool, luminous tide of self-effacement. 
the windless expanse of the ocean have the same effect and nothing is more beautiful to me than to see islands and promontories capes and headlands swimming in a delicate transfiguring mist of motionless water it is when the moon rises over wide stretches of level sand at the sea's edge that one can most easily sink away out of the body of one's prison into the large magical horizons where the weariness of thought is purged and the heart is at peace for the sword outwears its sheath and the soul outwears the breast and the heart must pause to breathe and love itself have rest my friends have often laughed at me for this fantastic devotion to the moon and rallied me for my sudden indifference to their conversation when the translunar magic has wrapped me away down long quivering silvery paths out of the reach of both hate and love but i have not felt remorse they have pointed out how inconsistent such devotion is with my nervous almost feline dislike of damp grass and dewy fields and so it may be certainly the feeling of dampness in the air the approach of rain the rising of the wind always dispel these fragile emotions a touch of chilliness of cold physical discomfort is sufficient to drive me back miserable and disenchanted into my human cave that is why my ideal of happiness would be to sit under the shadow of some desert temple in a hot southern night and watch the moon mount up lovely and contemptuous above the palm trees but the sun himself has the same power especially when in his heavy noons he bleaches the grass bakes the sand and burns the dust further as i have suggested above certain cities of men evoke in their various ways this oblivious monotony venice does it by the elimination of street noises london by the obliterating power of her immensity and her mists new york by the engine-driven uniformity of her tremendous traffic life is so constructed that out of our most lamentable weakness nature creates the quality in us which is our genius and our triumph my greatest weakness is this profound weariness of the struggle this withdrawing from the creative stream the sinking back into the monotony of the unruffled face of the waters and yet this very self-effacement is an initiation and an enlargement for where i merge myself in the spaces and the elements i obtain something of their eternity and their calm what is perturbed and agitated in me sinks into the gulf and my essential being given over to the waveless windless forward sweeping tide of what flows and flows forever becomes part and parcel of that eternal stuff which cannot change or be increased or diminished the stuff out of which all the dreams of life are made and to which they all must sink at the end let there be no misunderstanding about this i am not in the smallest degree what people call a mystic quietist my sceptical detachment from all i do and say and from what all others do and say has nothing in it of a secret lying back upon hidden spiritual forces which are the true reality i do not believe in such forces i do not believe in such a reality 
if ever i experience the sensation that all we little men and women are muttering to one another in dreams and making meaningless gestures over a vast gulf it is not that i feel the reality of things to be flowing below us all the while strange and rich and wonderful it is that i feel the projections and excrescences the protrusions and assertions to be vain and futile while the great smooth marble-faced wheels of fate turn inexorably on their axles this is why in ordinary conversation i am so often distray and absent-minded or am so ready with a languid assent i seem to have heard the same thing said over and over again a million times i watch in my friends the inevitable working of the machinery that makes them just thus and not otherwise i hear the tick 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 of the everlasting clockwork behind them i know too well long before their sentences are finished what those sentences are going to be knowing them poor galvanic microcosms of the great necessity and knowing the limits of their destined reactions why should i be so interested in watching their little jerks and spasms and grindings i know well the sound of the pitiful creak of the machinery that started them and i know well the pitiful sound of the click with which they will run down in every situation that occurs i see the wires vibrating that will break it up why should i lend myself to the great illusion by uttering earnest and emphatic words about my opinion and my convictions or by trying to express to people my philosophy this is one of the reasons which make me so unsatisfactory a companion everybody else has the power of getting excited in what is called argument i cannot get excited and angry in argument i find it extremely difficult to get angry at all to get angry implies that you believe in free will and the freedom of people to be different from what they are and to say different things i do not believe in such freedom i know beforehand exactly what people are going to say what can i do then but listen and nod my head and mutter really and fancy that and how interesting it is for this reason that when i do assert myself and get excited it is always about some absurd little physical thing which touches one of my tastes or distastes i can grow eloquent and utter very vehement words about my preference for blue over yellow or satin over velvet or for horsehair sofas over cushioned couches i can use very plausible speech with people when my window does not open or my fire does not burn or my pen does not write but to spend breath upon them because they are anglicans or free lovers or mormons or necrophilists seems to me mere weariness of the flesh the whole of what we call social intercourse when there is nothing sexual in it is based upon this kind of illusion i have never been able to derive the least pleasure either from light conversation or intellectual disputes wit and persiflage bore me as they say to extinction i only shine in conversation when i am allowed to discourse upon my physical sensations or upon my aesthetic tastes the art of conversation is an odious nuisance to me as disagreeable as cards and how any intelligent person can prefer it to reading a book or indulging in a flirtation i cannot conceive it is this terrible and constant response to the thud 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 of the great universal engines which makes me throw myself so fiercely into the few distractions 
that do dull my intelligence when some provoking butterfly lure beckons me over hill and dale it is something if the excitement of the pursuit prevents my perverted mind from hearing the throbs of that hope-murdering world pump it is perhaps one of those stupid blunders into which i am myself always falling when i talk of the direct connection between my bodily wishes and my rational mind in reality my mind as compared with the minds of other people of tolerable cleverness seems remarkably independent of my body it is independent of my imagination of my artistic tastes and of my sensual fancy it is a villainously detached mind it goes on working an odious discontinuity quite apart from what i am feeling and saying it has also this rational mind of mine an infernal sense of humour how it gets hold of this god knows for i had always supposed that humour was a thing connected with one's general idiosyncrasies my grotesque difficulties in dealing with matter the thousand absurd ways in which matter fools me and tumbles me about are never missed you may be sure of that by my goblin-like mind i would not reveal to others not for a kingdom what this demon whispers to me and the deadly shrewdness of its mockeries i get no pleasure from its damned commentaries you are quite wrong dear reader if you conjure up a charming little sadistic complicity between this fellow with the whip and my poor shrinking sense consciousness i implore him to stop his flicks and fillips but he never will he only goes on the more i have to paralyze him by pretending indifference or by rolling up into a sulky pachydermatous passivity like a prickly hedge-pig my mind differs from the minds of my artistic friends in being so sceptically detached from my imagination in this respect and here i am sure i may speak without boasting i am much more intellectually honest than these charming people that they are so charming and that i enjoy them so is due to this very cause thank heaven they are not cursed with this diabolical puritanism of the pure reason which i find so devastating they wilfully and deliberately seem to keep plunging their minds into the exciting cisterns of their imaginative senses and continually hauling them up all phosphorescent and glimmering crusted over with the most lovely silt and shells i wonder if they are as conscious as i am of the great pistons and driving rods of nature perhaps they are perhaps they are just as fatalistic and disillusioned only they say to themselves since we all know the murderous uniformity of destiny let us pretend a little and colour our reason with the colours of our imagination now why is it that i so persistently refuse to do this and continue to hold my reason so clear so unstained by the sweet rich dyes of the sensual imagination i think the cause is not so simple but extremely complicated it is partly a rigid point of morality with me not rational morality but a sort of ingrained moral imperative the breaking of which would tear my whole being to pieces it is partly my restless longing to escape from myself and from all human associations the free unclouded working of the mind in liberation from imaginative colouring is itself a sort of escape 
when i think in this dry cold detached manner i become disembodied impersonal without love or hate i become a mere eerie nothing of analytical activity suspended as it might be in vacuo over the flowing stream of things and becoming this it seems as though there were needed little more than a shock of psychic dissolution to merge me completely in the unconscious elements finally i think i discern in it a desire to avoid the teasing laborious effort requiring so much buoyancy and energy of the use of the reason as a controlling pilot or shipmaster of the wave-tossed senses i let my senses drift as they will and my imagination drift with them like a forlorn passenger upon a derelict vessel while my irresponsible reason floats away upon its raft heedless and indifferent on a former page i referred a little to my vices and indicated that they belonged rather to the surface than the depths of my being in this view of the matter i am of course denying the great schopenhauer's doctrine of the sinister profundity of the will to live i am also denying the nietzschean doctrine of the will to power in opposition to these formidable names i may summon to my support those two calm and detached spirits perhaps the wisest of all i mean epicurus and spinoza but though my vices are on the surface they are not the less imperious it is on the surface that i live and move and have my being it is on the surface that i lead my queer subjective life of sense impressions that life from which my errant reason is continually escaping so imperious indeed are one or two of these inveterate exigencies that i sometimes wonder if the dullness of all this tiresome analysis is not due to the fact that i am not at liberty to blazon them arrogantly forth in the manner of some unrepentant sinners in our midst unfortunately the receptivity of our modern public is not as sane and shrewdly balanced as was that which welcomed the egotistic ramblings of montaigne and the result of this lack of balance in the public has not been encouraging in its effect upon more recent outspoken writers those who do flourish their little vices abroad seem to be so disturbed by their consciousness of the public's attitude that their natural ease becomes brazen impertinence and their honest self-analysis a ridiculous sort of swaggering bravado in their rage at their audience's grossness of apprehension and in a savage wish to outrage it they emphasize so monstrously the little perversities of their sensory nerves that every kind of proportion is lost and some quite harmless fool of a sedentary scribbler whose real permanent instincts are most innocently domestic steps forth upon the boards a terrible and awe-inspiring don juan the stupidity of the public with the contemptible baseness of its paid teachers is really responsible for half the childish arrogance of our naive immoralists while a deplorable lack of humorous common sense on both sides throws the matter out of all relation to reason a time will perhaps come again may it come soon when the old wise classical way of regarding all these things 
will lift such blurring mists and disfiguring mirages from the self-knowledge of men and women but meanwhile i for one have not the remotest intention of turning my little peculiarities into great satanic masks of anti-social defiance the very suppression of free speech in these things which is so contemptible an aspect of our age tends to excite in the average mind a most monstrous and vindictive curiosity a curiosity untouched by any genial rabelaisian humour an evil sneaking hypocritical curiosity a curiosity which is a bastard cousin to the worst excesses it reprobates the most sensible thing a writer or artist can do is to sublimate what he regards as vicious in himself and use it as a medium of illumination in his creative work this alone quite apart from social morality offers a very plausible excuse for what is called virtue an excuse which the most inspiring among modern geniuses have not been slow to seize whatever may be said about the undesirability of vice in ordinary life a certain amount of this smouldering tartarian fire is absolutely essential in literature the absence or presence of it is precisely what makes the difference between an imaginative work and a work with no imagination though in this also there are infinite and subtle degrees there is a certain vulgar sensuality in some popular writers which is odious one flame of the pit differeth from another flame of the pit as widely as star from star i say flame of the pit but there is really no need to drag in these portentous words one writer has the genius to refine and winnow his aboriginal promptings to a noble imaginative issue another tosses them away in his track like bits of orange peel from a proletarian picnic ultimately it is a matter of the difference between a fine taste and a taste of blundering indiscrimination i think i do plead guilty to certain quaint half-vices things in no degree wicked but things which by their lack of intelligent suggestiveness must be regarded as belonging to the sphere of death rather than of life such for instance may be the queer semi-comatose sensuality which leads me to pace up and down hour by hour on the same grassy path or below the same sunlit wall as i trail my feet along the feeling of the earth or sand under them seems to have the odd diffused effect of some narcotic or drug in the same way the peculiar and special look of a grassy bank against the sky thrills me as i keep walking and walking beneath its shadow with a weird heavy vegetable sensuality i seem to embrace its soft flowing contours with a slow saurian persistence not visualizing it in the least artistically or imaginatively but doggedly tightening my hold upon it in a grave quiet patient obstinacy i have a suspicion that there was something of this sluggish sensuality about the wordworthian attitude to nature only he used it for spiritual intimations while i use it for its own sake and keep it purely animal or if you like vegetable sensation is it i wonder 
because of this very heaviness and sluggishness of sensual apprehension that i cry out so wearily sometimes for the wings of the dove what i really do i suppose is to use earth and sand and dust and grass and trees and flowers as if they were things to be eaten and drunken or things to be made love to in a sort of mesmerized trance i wish i knew by what gradual degrees and exactly why i have fallen into this habit i can remember long ago on dartmoor astonishing and scandalizing my energetic friend t h l by expressing a wish that there was no need for me to do anything ever again but walk up and down up and down a disused moss-covered granite quarry my intelligent artistic emotions must be singularly abortive and the delicate forms and colours of things must leave me lamentably unmoved else i could never remain so long content in a pure physiological ecstasy absorbed by the mere material touch of the soil and the mere material warmth of the sun was i really a great browsing ox in my last incarnation or a broad-leaved placid burdock plant i confess sometimes that the heavy cynical sceptical materialism of my temperament fills me with an immense repulsion i am so accursedly self-centred and unhuman it is not an agreeable sensation dear reader even for a master sensationalist like myself to feel suddenly conscious of the absence in him of what every one else possesses the absence of a soul i catch myself envying sometimes the capacity for natural sorrow which normal people have i verily believe that i could lose some of my dearest friends and still go on my way kicking up the dust and trailing my fingers through the tall hedge parsley i think i have something of the heavy unilluminated obtuseness of feeling of extremely old people i believe i was born old i certainly was treated as such by my childish companions it is out of the depths of this sluggish quagmire of dull sensationalism that i sometimes curse even the majestic fatality of the universe i think that if the feet of the godlike nazarene ever trod the sandy paths of my frequenting i should cast myself down before him and cry aloud to be delivered from the body of this death certainly knowing what i know of myself i will deal gently with every type of perverse and arbitrary egoism with every mad mirage hunter pursuing his own shadow across the desert i sometimes wish that i could be thrown into a kind of magical epilepsy from the convulsions of which i should arise with a new soul and a responsive heart and go forth to assume responsibilities and to bear burdens and fight fiercely for noble causes and suffer the bitterness of love and know the salt taste of tears how an attempt such as this poor contradictory sketch to indicate the perversities and frailties of one individual life shows the barriers and inaccessible walls between which we all grope forward pushed so mercilessly from behind it might almost seem as though the desperate noble recklessness with which our european youth is now throwing its life away as a child's toy at the command of its political leaders is something more in harmony with the secret of nature than that avaricious 
hoarding up of imaginative sensations which is the life of the artist sometimes it almost seems as though only those who despised the preciousness of living were those who really lived those only who held life lightly and risked it on a dice's throw those only who really knew the true savour of its sweetness and the spiritual thrill of its throbbing pulse certainly the path of our days leads to strange headlands now and then looking over unexpected landscapes happier those who do not see the image of themselves as a dark stooping shadow moving with greedy intentness across the pastures from fungus bed to fungus bed and avoiding morosely the flocks and their shepherds happier those who from such a promontory over the valley of their pilgrimage can see not one dark image of themselves unchanged and unchanging but a long procession of wayfarers different and yet the same a procession of which their present living image is only one in an endless sequence a sequence of the putting off of masks and the stripping away of disguises a sequence of death for the sake of life and of life for the sake of more life happier those but meanwhile irrevocable fate sweeps us all forward and the wisest and least wise among us are lucky if they can adjust themselves to its adamantine decrees without the aching of their flesh and the envenoming of their heart's blood it will be something after all if when we die though we have been the maddest egoists on earth some queer acquaintance be found to throw a handful of dust upon our ashes and to feel a moment's darkening of the high sun in the indifferent heaven at the loss of even so unresponsive a fellow wayfarer end of part eleven end of confessions by john cooper powis